the environments we are in are increasingly hostile, which is why I'm personally a nervous ball of energy. (laughs) And many church leaders would like Jesus to return before 2024. (laughs) See, here's, here's part of the problem and the challenge. And when I speak of this, I speak to ourselves as disciples of Jesus. I speak to us as a church. Far too many Christians do not know how to wisely handle the times that we're in. We have not been discipled in the politics of Jesus. And therefore, we don't know how to hold government in its proper place. If I think to myself just for a moment of the earliest ways in which I was discipled when it came to politics and government, I was very clearly told you don't talk about politics and government in church. That was my discipleship. My discipleship was they are separate. They're two entirely different things. They don't belong together. They don't exist together. They don't come together in a Sunday morning preaching context you haven't noticed, I now disagree. (laughs) And thankfully, we have a text before us that helps us in this. You see, in our text this morning, I think Jesus disciples us in the way of his politics, in the way of his government, and he teaches us how to place politics, how to place government in its proper place because it does indeed have a proper place. And so that's what we're going to work through this morning. So um, with our time, I don't, I don't have necessarily an outline with points as much as I have just some questions and some thoughts to help guide our, our direction together. And so the first thing that we need to do is we just need to simply ask, what's happening in our text? What's happening in our text? Verse 15. Then the Pharisees, just just listen to this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Why would they do that? (laughs) And they sent their disciples to him. Also something interesting to note, right? Discipleship wasn't just something that Jesus did. That was something that existed in his day. So they bring their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Now, I just want to acknowledge from the get-go that this text, on one hand, is incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple. Jesus is very clear in regards to how uh, the Pharisees are treating him, uh, how they are misunderstanding the whole point. And he's very clear in his answer to them what it is that they should do. But at the same time, this text is loaded with complexity, and it is 
loaded with nuance. And so that's what we need to try to work out here from this text this morning. But first, there's a few things for us to see. And the first is this, is that an unlikely team is formed here. Okay, It's, the, it's Jesus's final week of life. We, we know this from previous weeks here in Matthew. He's entered Jerusalem and he's clearly established the fact that he is the long-awaited Davidic king. So let's just be clear up front, that is a very political move. Can we, we can't deny that, right? Like, if someone enters in as a, as a, as a royal figure, that's, that's politics. And this is what Jesus has done. Now, let's remember that this has been the life of Jesus. This isn't just a, a solitary moment here in Matthew 22 and 23. This has been his existence. It has been working up to this point. We know this because of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 in the genealogy set it up for us that Jesus enters into the world and he is the son of David. Okay? All that's supposed to do is draw us to the, the royal, messianic, kingly reality of who this figure is. Furthermore, as we continue to work our way through the gospel of Matthew, right? Matthew 2 is a very interesting scene because in Matthew chapter 2, there's wise men who come looking for Jesus and they go up to Herod. It's an important name for us in light of our text here, right? And what is the question that they ask Herod? Anyone? Can you remember? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Those were fighting words. Herod would have found that to be absolutely offensive because who was Herod? King of the Jews. Yet, yet he wasn't born king of the Jews. He had, to, he had to finagle his way in there through corrupt aspects of living. And these wise men come to him and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who is the rightful heir to the throne? All of that is simply to say that Jesus' life from the get-go has been politically offensive and politically disruptive. This is not new. Now, the problem that we're facing specifically in this text when it comes to the Pharisees is that nothing about the Messiahship of Jesus is measuring up to what they expected it to be, right? The religious authorities had an expectation, they had an understanding of who the Messiah would be, what he would look like, what he would do, and Jesus isn't doing any of it. And in light of that, because of that, what we see is that Jesus is utterly disruptive. His parables were utterly offensive. Right, like let's let's get that clear. The Pharisees did not like what Jesus had to say in the parables that we spent the last several weeks working through. And so, what we have here is a scene in which tensions are building among among the crowds of worshipers who have come to, to sacrifice and give offerings in the temple, and tensions are are rising. It's I can't even describe how tense this scene is for us. But what we have in the midst of it then is this unlikely team that's formed. Again, 
It's so easy to miss the tension of the text, but understand this, the Pharisees are irate. Like if we could just take whatever the strongest word for anger is and put it here, that's the Pharisees. They are, they are agitated and their only hope at this point because of what Jesus has spoken against them is to find some way to entangle him or to trap him. They don't want him to exist anymore. They're doing everything they can to figure out how to get rid of Jesus because Jesus has called them out and he's called them to account. And and just notice so specifically that it is the religious leaders of Israel who lead the charge here. That should help us solidify the previous week's texts that we worked through. Like if anyone was like questioning, was Jesus really calling out the religious leader establishment? Yes. Because you, you don't respond like this if you haven't just been called out on some stuff. Right? So the Pharisees are irate. They are angry, as, as one could possibly imagine. And, and this is important for us to understand Uh, One preacher put it like this. He said, quote, Jesus wasn't crucified on a Roman cross for preaching a feel-good personal encouragement message to love your neighbor and say a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. That wouldn't have gotten him killed. He was rejected and crucified because he claimed to be bringing another kingdom into the world. This is what Jesus is doing, right? And, And it's important for us to understand that because I mean, so often we just like we feel like Jesus just wants to come and give us a hug and a pat on our back, right? But he is he is bringing into the world another kingdom. He is the King. He is the Lord. And so the tension is just so intense. And the Pharisees are so done with Jesus that they are willing to team up with the Herodians in order to have them killed. Have him killed now. At first glimpse, this might seem like, you know, whatever. They found the Herodians and they wanted to go kill Jesus together. But here's, here's what we need to know is that these are enemies. Because the Herodians are for Rome. They are, they are pawns of the Roman government. They're not helping the cause of the Pharisees or the Jews or the nation of Israel. They're not helping at all. They're just doing whatever they can to keep quiet under Roman rule and occupation. The Pharisees don't like that. These two groups want nothing to do with each other. Absolutely nothing. Nothing would have possibly brought them together other than this. And this makes sense because what we see here is that Jesus is a clear threat to both the religious and political authorities. He's disrupting all of it. Jesus doesn't fit in the national, religious, or political box. And it's agitating. So this unlikely team is formed. The second thing that we see then in the text is this is a a seemingly impossible question is asked. They ask him, but whether or not it's, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. That's, that's their question. And so they, they come together and they ask what on the surface is, is it's an incredibly loaded question. Okay? Now, now here's, here's what's interesting about it, right? Is they, they attempt to butter up Jesus. <laughs> Obviously, 
right? When they they go to Jesus and, and they say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion if you're not swayed by appearances. They don't mean that. I mean, they understand it because they've experienced it, because they've experienced the person of Jesus, but they don't mean it. They're doing nothing but trying to butter him up. And and it's clear that they don't understand who Jesus is because they they call him what? Teacher, which as we've learned is always a negative in the Gospel of Matthew. When someone calls Jesus teacher, it means they're not understanding who Jesus is. So they're they're clearly not understanding who Jesus is. But the obvious intent here is to trap Jesus with an impossible question. But let's notice a few things before we get to Jesus' response. First, we need to understand that the question around taxes is not new. This wasn't the first time that this was asked. There was a revolt about 25 years prior to Jesus because of the taxes, because of the issue of the taxes. In another approximately 40 years after Jesus, there would be another revolt by a Jewish leader because of taxes, because of this Roman rule and oppression. So what we have here is Jesus is sandwiched between two incredibly intense political scenarios. Um, He's sandwiched between by these revolts because of the Roman tax, which ultimately represents Roman rule and oppression. Now, we have to ask, well, what's the big deal about the tax? Well, the tax was a means of oppression. Uh, in its most simple way of understanding what this was, it was a means of oppression. It, was, it would have been kind of like paying the government money to buy bricks that you made in order to build a house that you'll never own. How, like, how does that sound? Great. Right? No one wants to pay that tax. Right? We pay taxes. It's not that bad. And so it was this, it was this oppressive tool that, that no Jewish man who was required to pay it wanted to pay it. Right? They were always trying to think of a way to get out of it, which is why they were hoping it's why they were looking for a particular kind of Messiah who would come and destroy Rome and get rid of Rome. And Jesus is not measuring up to this. So here's the other thing that we see, though, is that the the Pharisees expose a reality. And I think the reality that they expose is this, is that religion, okay, now when we talk about religion in Taproot, most often we speak of it in a negative sense. Most often when we talk about religion, we're talking about our attempts to earn our way to God through whatever, Right, through our good works, deeds, words, whatever. Okay? We don't believe that we can do that. Jesus had to do that for us. Okay? But what we see is that religion and politics is almost always boiled down to a binary solution. Okay? In other words, notice what they do. They try to trap Jesus in what they believe is a simple yes or no answer. They try to distill this down into yes or no or or black and white. The problem is that there's no nuance or complexity, but Jesus doesn't succumb to this way of thinking because Jesus knows that there's loads of nuance and complexity. And this is how Jesus will answer. But but here, here specifically is what the trap is. 
If Jesus says yes to paying the tax, then what that communicates is he's friends with Rome and can't possibly be the Messiah. That's what the Pharisees have in mind. Right? They're hoping Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, because then they have grounds on which to get rid of Jesus. On the other hand, if Jesus says no to the tax, then he's a possible insurrectionist and he must be stopped. The Herodians would hope that Jesus would say no because then that gives them grounds to stop Jesus. See the trap? But Jesus responds marvelously. Do you know how we know? Because the text tells us. Notice Jesus' response is, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So the text tells us that Jesus' response is a marvelous response. It's amazing. The word here is the same word that's used of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 31, when he describes Moses' experience at the burning bush. That's a pretty good answer. Now, as a practical note, when Jesus says something that causes his harshest opponents to marvel, we should stop and pay attention. There's, there's obviously loads of complexity and nuance to what Jesus has to say here. Because they marvel and they're silenced and they walk away. They're like, that was good, we've got nothing. And so we should stop and pay attention to what Jesus says. And Jesus does at least two things with his response. First, he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees which is really fantastic. They're trying to coerce Jesus into a hard and fast anti-Rome posture, yet they have and are benefiting from the very government that they oppose. How do we know? Because they pulled out a coin to show it to Jesus. By their, by their pulling out the coin, they're, they're, they're displaying that they're participating in this government. Regardless of how oppressive it is or how evil it might be, There's still participants in it. Jesus won't allow himself to be held to the extremes that they're trying to hold him to without also returning that favor. And so he exposes their hypocrisy. Another another side note, Jesus Jesus shows that he's just, he's really not all that concerned about it. Like he's willing to handle the coin and enter into the conversation. Jesus is not paranoid. Jesus is not frantic. Jesus is not fearful of Rome or the religious authorities. The second thing that Jesus does is he shows us how to properly respond to human governments. And his response is two-sided. His response is first, render to Caesar. That is, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's his first response. Now, Jesus, again, has no problem acknowledging that the coin has the image of Caesar on it. Now, we might might not find that to be a big deal, right? Because we have dollar bills that have images of our our former presidents on them. It was different, though. And here's the difference. On the coin, uh, I believe you had one side that had uh, the face of Caesar on it, and I I think the other side had an eagle on it. I can't remember at the moment. I'm sorry, I didn't write it down. 
Nevertheless, on one of the sides, it had the face of Caesar on it. And here is what it said. Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. Uh, President Lincoln was cool, but he didn't get that inscription. (laughs) See what I mean? It was a little bit different. The, The understanding of who Caesar was to the Roman Empire is that he was the son of God. Because his daddy was the divine Augustus. So you, you have here claims to not just royalty, but claims to divinity. And yet Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Right? Like this is loaded with political stuff. Right? The second thing that Jesus teaches is, is give to God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. In saying this, essentially what Jesus is doing is he's telling us that government is limited in its scope and its power, and it's all ultimately under the authority of God. So, So again, on the one hand, you have a very simple solution, right? Jesus is just very clear. Well, whose inscription, whose face is on this? Caesar? Okay. It belongs to Caesar. Give it back to Caesar, on the other hand, it's all under God's authority. God is sovereign. Yahweh is the creator of all. He's over all things. Everything is under him. So give to God what is God's. And so in doing this, Jesus gives us options when it comes to our response to government. And the options are this, is that we are to submit and subvert, or that is undermine the power and authority structure. Another way to put it would be respecting and resisting. This is what Jesus is teaching here in this text. He's teaching of both. And the question for us is, well, what does this look like? Um, Submission and subversion, respect and resist. Now, before we get into this, I want to say that I'm utilizing numerous resources this morning for this. Um, uh, For one thing, a sermon by a pastor in New York City whose name is John Tyson was very helpful. Also, several books that I have kind of just utilized over the past several months, year, and then also just most recently. I have a list. Um, If you're you're interested uh, in what what it might look like for us to further engage in political witness in the turbulent times that we live in, I would encourage you to take a picture. Okay? Uh, and I'll just briefly kind of go over those. Uh, none of them are overly large, just so you know. <laughs> and they're really intriguing as well. And I, at least I think they are. Anyways, you can judge for yourselves. Uh, political Gospel, this is a book that recently came out, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World by Patrick Schreiner. Uh, this is, this is the book that I utilized the most for this sermon. found it to be very helpful. Uh, the second one, Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians by Lee Camp. Uh, that one is really challenging. Another good one, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. The title speaks for itself there. Um, those guys also have a really good, pro- uh, good podcast called Truth Over Tribe that comes out every Wednesday. I found it to be helpful. 
uh, We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy by Robert Tracy McKenzie. The premise of his book is really interesting. His whole like big idea is that the reason why democracy was created is because the founders of our country did not inherently trust in the goodness of humans. And, and so they believed that a system had to be created that kept that in check. And that's what he kind of goes into in his book. He talks about how we've lost that, that sight of humanity. Okay. Um, let's see, what else? Compassion and Conviction by Judd, Justin Gibney. Honestly, that's my least favorite on the list, but whatever, it's helpful too. Um, the Religious Beliefs of Americans, America's Founders, Reason, Revolution, and Rev... Oh, I, that's a typo. I'm sorry. Um, that book is really interesting because he delves into what the religious beliefs of our founders actually were. Uh, what, he call, what he calls it is, um, he calls it theistic rationalism. In other words, the whole idea of his book is that uh, our, the founders of our country were not Christian as we suppose them to be often, right? Nor, nor were they absolutely deists. Rather, they had some kind of idea of, of God, uh, uh, theistic, right? But they were rationalists. They just wanted to figure out what would make things work. Very, very interesting. Uh, Another helpful one is the Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. I'll be honest, I haven't read that book. Pastor Will has, though. And I've listened to numerous things by Caitlin Chess, and she's very uh, compelling and and very just wise in her her studies. So anyways, that's a, a, a helpful, in my opinion, list of resources that you can go to if you're like, Mike's crazy. Uh, what are his crazy references? There they are. <laughs> okay. Here's what we need to do. Um, okay, two questions. In order, before, we, before we look into what it means to submit and to subvert, we have to kind of get some groundwork on some things. First off, we need to ask, what are politics? What are politics? Okay. And here's why this is important. When it comes to politics, we tend only to think, because this is what we've been discipled under, we tend only to think in terms of partisan politics, whereby everything devolves into a political issue of a partisan type. In other words, big issues come up or little issues come up, and then the question goes, what are the Democrats saying? What do the Republicans say? It becomes partisan. Here's just a silly example. I was checking my email this morning and I got an email from the Washington Post and there's a story about gas ranges. Anyone read that? Silly. Someone said that they were going to take away our gas ranges because gas ranges are dangerous for us, to which I said, don't touch my gas range. (laughs) Amen. Amen. But here's what happened. I read through the article and it was, you know, it was interesting on like a scientific level. But then at the very end, it devolved into what? Partisan politics. The gas ranges. Partisan politics. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about politics, we're not talking simply about which side we're on, whether Democrat or Republican. That is not a question that Jesus has in mind here. So what is it then that we're talking about? Well, here we go. Here's the definition. Politics literally just means the way in which we order our lives. Like the actual definition of the word politic, that is that. The way in which we order our lives. Now, 
Here is how Lee Camp says it. Here's how he helps to define this. He says, by politic, I mean an all-encompassing manner of communal life that grapples with all the questions that the classical art of politics has always asked. How do we live together? How do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with money? How do we deal with enemies and violence? How do we arrange marriage and families and social structures? How is authority mediated, employed, and ordered? How do we rightfully order passions and appetites? And much more besides, but most especially add these, where is human history headed? What does it mean to be human? And what does it look like to live in a rightly ordered human community that engenders flourishing justice and the peace of God? That's a more robust definition of politics. So you can narrow it down into just the way in which we order our lives, and then you can kind of spell it out here and and, and really kind of go through the details of the whole of our lives. Now, this makes perfect sense in in light of King Jesus, right? Because the question that King Jesus is asking is, how are our lives being ordered underneath of his rule and his reign? And so this is what gets us to the politic of Jesus, okay, which is our, our second point here. We need, so understanding what politics are then, we also need to understand that the gospel is political. Right? So to say that we can't talk about politics in church is to just X the gospel. Or for that matter, to, to, to greatly diminish what it actually is. The gospel is political. Here's here's what I mean. And, and, And we've talked about this throughout the gospel of Matthew, right? If you were alive in Jesus's day, you would have heard this term gospel with very different ears than we do. Because the term gospel historically and contextually was connected to emperors, politics, and military victory. The idea was this, is that you would have like, your, your, uh, your country, your team, so to speak, would go to war. Right? And then what you would have is someone who would come and they would declare, they would announce good news that your team won the war. That's what the term gospel, that's the context in which the term gospel is set in. It is, it's nothing but political undertones and kingdom language. Here is how Schreiner says it in his book that we referenced um, earlier, and which we'll reference a few more times as well. He says this, quote, the cultural script that should come to your mind, that's us, for gospel is the birth of a king or the conquest of an emperor. After his victory, an emissary would ride into town and announce the gospel of this ruler's victory. The good news means a new order has arrived. Therefore, to proclaim a gospel in Jesus' day was an implicit challenge to the established order. Again, Jesus wasn't like, if you just bow your head and say your prayer, you'll be in heaven. So much more offensive, so much more subversive, and honestly, so much more meaningful, so much more impactful. See, this is precisely what happened when Jesus entered the scene in the Gospels proclaiming, what did Jesus proclaim? What have have we been working through? When he proclaimed the Gospel, what was it specifically? I'll stop talking to give you a chance. Yes, 
Yes, right? Mark, Mark 1 opens up. Jesus enters and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Matthew, whenever we see Jesus entering into kind of a new stage, new season, what is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. We're supposed to hear the political nature of this. See, in the mind of Jesus and his disciples, you cannot separate kingdom from gospel. And you can't understand gospel without kingdom. They're intimately related. You can't can't separate them. Because if you do, you've diminished them. Another example, uh, just to quickly touch on, is uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Most of us, like, we're familiar with Romans chapter 1, Right? Why are we familiar with Romans chapter 1? Well, there might be a couple of reasons, but one reason is because of verses 16 and 17. Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, right? For it is the power of God for faith to all who, whatever, I don't have it in my head. But here's, here's the problem. Here's what we do. We look at verse 16 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then we think that he defines gospel in verse 17. He doesn't. He defined it in verses 1 through 6. And you can go back and look at one through six because Paul says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes on to describe that it is a reality about Davidic royalty. His declaration is that Jesus entered into human history as Lord and King. And he went to a cross on our behalf, defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell, and rose from that grave and ascended to a throne. That is the gospel for which Paul is not ashamed of. It is is the gospel that declares victory over every kingdom and over death. And that's why Paul's willing to die. It's a spiritual matter, yes, but it's not merely a spiritual matter. Schreiner goes on, and I love what he says here. He says this. He says, quote, We cannot privatize and depoliticize Jesus' message and say that he was establishing the rule of God in people's hearts or simply winning souls. This is eons away from what Jesus announced. Jesus' message brought him to a Roman cross. Above his head hung the charge, the king of the Jews. Okay. How are we doing? Good, we're not done yet. So now, back to submission and subversion. What does this look like? What might this look like? I'll confess, I just wanna say this is really challenging, okay? And again, I am by no means being exhaustive here in what I have to say about submission and subversion. Um, And I'll, I'll be honest, it's because I'm not good at it. This is, like, I'm... I'm challenged in this because I too am not good at it. I have much to learn when it comes to what it looks like to submit to and subvert government, okay? So back to the text. Let's keep in mind the text. They're trying to trap Jesus. There's a coin, has Caesar's head and inscription on it, and Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Two directions, submission and subversion, respect and resist. Okay? Two ways of saying the same thing. So first, we submit because, why do we submit? 
Well, I'd venture to say because Jesus said to, <laughs> right? And then that's it. We submit because Jesus said to. We also submit because in, in this, what we understand, what we know to be true from Scripture is that God has ordained government. Right? God has ordained it. So we're familiar here, Romans, right? That's said to Romans, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Subject, what, what, what's that word mean? Submit, right? Be submissive to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Okay. So, that's, so that's challenging. I mean, it answers our question, right? Sub, be subject to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's just verse one. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Do you see what's happening here? See what Paul is referencing? The issue of taxes is coming up again. But Paul's taking the teaching of Jesus and he's saying, be subject to the governing authorities, okay? Now here, a couple things about the text that I just want to highlight for us. The text is primarily about taxes. It is not teaching that there is, that there is a wholesale submission to governing authorities no matter what. That's not what it's teaching. Its primary driving force, its driving point is to get to the issue of paying taxes. And Paul's conclusion is what? Pay the taxes, Pay taxes, just like Jesus said. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, okay? Now, but here's, here's the challenge. Here is, here is the challenge when it comes to submitting. Let's, let's be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want to. But how, like how many of you have a hard time submitting to the government? You're like, okay, we got some hands. I, I'm with you. I, like, I'll be honest there are things I just don't want the government to tell me about, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want the government to tell me about how to handle my food. I, I'm a smart person. I can do the research. I can figure out what's good for me. And then I can proceed. But yet they've seen fit to meddle their way in there. How do we handle that? Right? Not good. <laughs> but this is what Paul says to submit to. This is, this is the governing authority he's talking about. Now, I bring that up to, to say, like, we have a hard time submitting to governing authorities. Who was in charge when Paul said this? Nero. Um, in no uncertain terms, Nero was a whack job. The guy was crazy, right? Like, historically, he's known for using Christians as torches in his backyard, that's Nero. And yet Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. And we're like, they're making us wear masks. 
told you you'd be offended. I'm just saying, like, it, it's, a, it's a challenge that we have to assess, right? Uh, a, a more difficult verse, in my opinion, is 1 Peter. Just so you know, my statement on the mask was not me picking sides. I just thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> I thought we were bored. <sighs> in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, listen to this. Again, this is Peter now. He says, be subject, that is submit, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How, now, how, how did that happen? One, one more time. What did he say? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. If ever there was a challenge to how we posture ourselves to governing authorities, that is it. Because essentially Peter is saying, again, in the midst of the Roman Empire with Nero as the ruler, he's saying, do good. Live good lives as disciples of Jesus. Be an effective Christian witness. Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Right? Don't use your freedom as a follower of Jesus to think that you can just resist in whatever way you want, is what Peter is saying. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter would go on to be crucified upside down. So if, again, if we're wondering what submission might look like, might look like that. So we submit because we know that God has ordained government. And we submit not, not just when we like it. Submission is not a matter of preference. You see, I think Christians today and for a long time have been really bad or good at this. We'll submit as long as the right party is in office, the others are potentially the Antichrist. Right? Again, it's, it's, it's just this sort of binary black and white, yes or no picture that Jesus is so much more nuanced on. And Jesus' words aren't like, just submit when the Republicans are there. Nope. It's challenging. See, Jesus is saying to respect and submit to those, as is Paul and as is Peter, he's saying to respect and submit to those with whom we also disagree and with those who, who set policies with which we might not like and that don't align with, with Scripture or the way of Jesus. Yet in doing so, what happens is we're a more effective witness. Okay? Now, here's the thing. It's not always submission. It's not always respect. Sometimes it's resistance. Sometimes it's subversion. We're to obey human governments until they ask us to disobey the way of 
Jesus. Again, the way of Jesus, not the way of our personal preference. The way of Jesus. I'm assuming there might be differences. The way of Jesus. Uh, One preacher put it like this. He said, we're to obey human governments until they ask us to compromise the way of Jesus. Then we engage in nonviolent, that's key, because that's the way of Jesus, nonviolent, faithful disobedience and peaceful protest, which is very complex and very nuanced. Again, there's loads of ways in which that we could go into this. One example that, the the one that came to my mind most immediately was just um, marriage. Marriage might be a good example because the government has attempted to define marriage on its terms, but as disciples of Jesus, that's not something that we submit to because our understanding is different, right? Um, How else can we go into this? Another example that I wrote down, just in light of, you know, it's so interesting trying to speak into this in our context. (laughs) But here's just another example, right? The last couple of years have seen loads of, of tension, race tension. And again, this is like, I know you've got opinions, I know. Um, but here's, here's the thing. These tensions are not as simple as obeying the police. We, as followers of Jesus, should nonviolently protest wherever the image of God is not being honored. See how that works? It's not, it's not as simple as that us versus them, or if they would just do this, then they would do this. That's not the issue, The issue is the image of God. And wherever we see that as disciples, whether it be because of race or religion or sexuality, we have a responsibility to defend the image of God, which means we have to see things outside of partisan politics because partisan, it doesn't allow us to do so. Now, again, this is challenging, right? Like I said, there are things that I don't like from the government or want the government in. My food and health are an example, but here's the tension. At the same time that I might not want the government to meddle in my food and my health, I am receiving benefits from the government with insurance. So what do I do? How do, I, how do I both submit and subvert that reality? Another good assessment for you when it comes to submission and subversion, a good assessment for us might be this. What are your conversations like and what are your social media posts saying? Are they representative of the way of Jesus and his kingdom? Or are they representative of a donkey and an elephant? So here's, here's the challenge, is that when it comes to submission and subversion, there's not always easy answers there. And so what we have to understand is that Jesus presents an entirely different way. His way is his kingdom. And, and we have to just, we have to set this in our context. His kingdom is neither Democrat nor Republican, 
It's entirely different and it's entirely better. Yeah. So what, what, might this, what might this look like? I just, I found Schreiner and what he had to say on this incredibly helpful. So I'm just going to read a page or so out of his book. Um, I just think it's a helpful presentation of this. He says, so what should we do? March, protest, overthrow, stock up on ammunition. <laughs> it's like he's from Idaho. <laughs> the, the most subversive thing we can do is exist as the kingdom of God amid the kingdom of man. This was Jesus' main political action. He came announcing a new way and forming a new community. We too witness to the world about the king and his kingdom where justice, peace, and harmony reside. Jesus did not seek to change the structures around him. He preached another politic, another way. And this alternative politic is manifested where? In the community of believers we call the church. Side note, this is why we emphasize and value local church membership. Because what we're communicating is that we are an outpost, an embassy, that's really political governmental language, right? We are an embassy of the kingdom. We are, we're ambassadors individually. We are collectively ambassadors and outpost for God's kingdom. This is where this reality takes place. Okay? He goes on. That is one reason it is so important to be part of a local church and around other Christians who remind you of your true loyalty and the kingdom to come. Whenever a preacher preaches, he makes a political speech. Isn't that cool? (laughs) Reminding you that Jesus is king in the present. Whenever you receive communion, you repledge your allegiance to Christ's kingdom. And whenever you share the gospel of Christ with a neighbor, friend, or family member, you are helping advance Christ's campaign among the nations. For a Christian, the political life must begin inside the church. Though this might sound like standard Christian advice, it is of utmost importance. The local church is the political rallying point for all of God's people. We all occupy different stations, but we are all politicians. Stay-at-home moms might wonder what the political gospel has to do with them. In training their kids to love the heavenly king, they are the first specialists for a new heavenly citizen. Dang, that's good. Businessmen and women are ambassadors for a new regime behind enemy lines. Artists and creatives provide symbols and images for a new kingdom. Musicians craft songs and liturgy that form our desires and imaginations for a new city. Teachers and students are training for a life of influence under the reign of their sovereign. Our primary subversive political witness is to create a community that is loyal to King Jesus and make all other political allegiances pale in comparison. A political gospel subordinates all other tribal instincts, and this will have a leavening effect upon society. That is the way of the kingdom. That's what we've been called into A few closing thoughts for us, for our time. Um, these aren't in any, any particular order. Here's things I wanted to say. <laughs> and the first is this, is that political engagement is nuanced. One of the questions that comes then is like, well, what does it look like for us as disciples of Jesus to engage in politics? Like, should we run for office? Those kinds of things. 
I don't have an answer. <laughs> it's not a one-size-fits-all reality. Right? However, Christians, I would say, can and should faithfully engage in politics, even of the partisan sort. We see this reality in Scripture, right? Just a few leaders who engaged well in politics. Joseph, he did a pretty good job, saved a whole group of people. Nehemiah, right? He was cupbearer to the king. He used his political position and power to bring Israel, to, to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem and protect his people. Uh, Jeremiah, Esther, Daniel, to name a few, are all figures that we see in Scripture who were, were put in political positions and used that for God's kingdom. And they did, they both submitted and subverted their rulers while they were in office with them, so to speak. But here's the thing, when it comes to political engagement, and I want you to hear this uh, carefully, non-offensively, we'll do our best. We must never think that it is our job to create a Christian nation. Scott Sauls is a pastor in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He said this, quote, when those in power made Christianity the state religion, the church began its decline toward irrelevance. I remember, I remember, my early discipleship days in the church. And the reason why I was told that you can't talk about politics in the church is because of the separation of church and state, which has nothing to do with local church gatherings. The the whole idea of separation of church and state that was put forth by our founders was for our good. And it was that we would not have a state-sponsored religion. Because the moment we try to make this thing the thing that everyone has to do, it goes to, you know... It doesn't work. It's never worked. Throughout the, throughout the history of the church, whenever she has become a state-sponsored religion, she always declines toward irrelevance. See, it's our job to disciple the nations, not set up a special Christian one. So political engagement is nuanced. Second, government in its proper place enables wise submission and critique. See, this is how we become a people who have an effective witness, is we keep government and politics in its proper place. Only then do we have the ability to actually witness to the world around us. Another way to put this is that we don't expect the government to be Christian. Just so, just so you're clear, I'm not shocked when the government does stupid non-Christian things. I have not put that expectation upon it. It will never give us that. Yeah. John Tyson said this, he says, quote, Christians believe that we can thrive in any form of government and that we're to have a posture of honoring and resisting at the same time. And anytime we only embrace, we are in danger of distortion of our mission and our message. And so we must always try to work out this tension of keeping these things in their proper place. You see, and and by keeping government in its proper place, we actually do the best service we can. Only when we keep it in its proper place do we not idolize it. And when we don't idolize it, we can rightly critique it. 
You see, for some of us, if, 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 the, if the conversation about politics causes you to go from zero to 145 in two seconds with anger, it's probably idolatry. It's misplaced. And, and no one can have a conversation there. Right? And the church is to be a space in which we're supposed to be able to have some conversations. Finally, what are we being formed by? We've been talking about this throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, and this is just of utmost importance. We are being formed. We are being shaped. We are being discipled by somebody, someone, something. Patrick Schreiner says it like this. Quote, a steady diet of political propaganda from our partisan networks and podcasts will not conform us to the image of Christ. What conforms us to the image of, of Christ is, a, I mean, a steady diet of, of this little guy, <laughs> right? Of being students of Scripture, being a people who are submitted first and foremost to our King Jesus, submitted to the Holy Spirit, and who are in community with one another. Who, guess what? We're gonna have differences. I have friends in this church who voted Democrat. And they love Jesus. And we can have conversations. I'm not telling you what I did. <laughs> but even if it was different than you, we should be able to have a conversation about it. Right? And, not, and not like, not an angry yelling match, like an actual conversation, right? What are we being formed by? Is it the way of Jesus? Okay. Here's what I'll conclude with. I want to say that I'm incredibly grateful for this country. Amen? Right? Like we, we should all be we, to, to say what I've said, just so we're clear, is not in any way oppositional to any people in the military or in first responders or, or anything like that. In no way. We are, I am, incredibly grateful for this country. I have experienced an immense amount of wealth, freedom, and ability to make decisions that most of human history would never have dreamed imaginable. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. I'm thankful for the opportunity to safely gather as a church Sunday after Sunday. There's so much to be grateful for. I can honestly say that I love my country. I love it enough to submit to certain things that I really don't like, but I also love it enough to critique that which is not right or just. But in the same breath, I have to say that the United States is neither my first nor primary love. The United States is not where my allegiance lies. You see, America is not the kingdom of God. It is not the promised land. It is not a holy nation. There is no covenant that has been made between God and the founding fathers. The Bill of Rights is not a divinely inspired document that is to be placed on the same level as scripture. The constitution is not an infallible piece of paper. All of it will one day fade away to dust and ashes. Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. 
And neither Republicans nor Democrats are inherently Christian in nature or non-Christian in nature. You see, my allegiance and our allegiance is to Jesus. And in our text, Jesus is calling us to his way. You see, all kingdoms will give way to Jesus. All political leaders will give way to Jesus. At the end of whatever, however this shakes out, at front and center will be King Jesus. And he's inviting us into his way, which is a better, always more satisfying way, even though his way is the way of the cross. You see, his way is a gentle, submitted, and subversive way of living that is not like anything that this world has ever seen, but in this is our witness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to rightly order our lives under King Jesus. Jesus, thank you for a text such as we had this morning where you... You give us direction and how to properly posture ourselves in this world. I pray that you would help us to lay down idolatry where there is idolatry. I pray that you'd help us to lay down indifference where there is indifference. And I pray that you'd help us to wisely engage in both submission and in subversion, but ultimately being a witness to your kingdom. I pray help us as a local church in Twin Falls, Idaho, to be an effective witness in the way that we order our lives with one another under your lordship. Thank you, Jesus, that you are ruling and reigning. Thank you, Jesus, that you will one day return and that you will wipe away all of these things. You'll be forgotten about, but we'll be with you face to face, worshiping. It's gonna be glorious. Amen.